Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it rained not on the space of the earth, on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens brought forth their rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Last time I preached here, we attempted to notice or at least some of what's to be seen on Mount Moriah from Genesis 21. What was to be seen on Mount Moriah? We noticed some of those things that are today we'd like to, I'd like to consider and take you along in considering another mountaintop experience, this one not on Mount Moriah, but on, like you have already guessed, on Mount Carmel. The title I've chosen for this sermon, What's to be Decided on Mount Carmel? And we are looking not only at the mountaintop experience, but at the man who experienced it. And I think it's so instructive and and wonderful that this man, the man that experienced that mountaintop experience on Mount Carmel, was one just like us. Isn't that what James 5, 17 and 18 says? Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. He was just like us. The Amplified Bible says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, with the same physical, mental, and spiritual limitations and shortcomings. That's the kind of man that he was, a man like us, subject to like passions as we are. There were other people on Mount Carmel that day. It wasn't a private experience as in the case of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah, but it was a very public exhibition, a very public situation on Mount Carmel here in 1 Kings 18. So let's examine a bit the place, Mount Carmel, but especially think together of the people that were there. So now you already know the text, right? Because of what Joseph read and the title. You already know the title, what's to be decided on Mount Carmel, and you know a little bit about the outline, right? First we talk about the place, and then we talk about the people that were there. So, the place, Mount Carmel. What do you know about Mount Carmel? It's in the land of Israel, but where? It is a mountain range, actually, out close to the Mediterranean Sea and about halfway north and south in the land of Israel. So, how many of you have been to Mount Carmel? You know more about it than I do. Good. Nice. And if you're thinking of, about the, a map of the land of Israel, can you imagine that? Or maybe you have maps at the back of your Bible. The coastline is pretty straight as it goes up through, but there's just one protrusion there, like a thumb sticking out in, in where the land and the Mediterranean meat, it's at that point, at the little thumb there, that's where Mount Carmel is. It's a very, at its base, and you folks that have been at Mount Carmel have certainly seen the fertile Jezreel Valley that 
is just at the bottom of Mount Carmel. Uh, and again, that's a very fertile plain. It's also called the Valley of Armageddon, of which you may have heard. And quite a few pivotal things happened there in that place, in that, at the base of Mount Carmel, especially wars and battles. But the bigger one, the main one, is still yet to come. But that's not our subject today. Th throughout Old Testament times, or throughout this period of the Old Testament, in the first and second Judges, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, Mount Carmel was a high place, as they called it, for idol worship. Baal. Um, the Baal people had their altars up there. It was a prominent place for idol worship. Somehow, uh, there, there was worship of the one true God at one point too, according to verse 30 in chapter 18. But especially, it was known as a high place there were green trees up there, I believe. Now, Baal was considered to be the god of thunder or the god of weather, the idol of weather, and fertility, both fertility of the field and fertility of the womb. That's what people who should have known better thought, or that's what they imagined and made up and came up with. With idol worship in general in the Old Testament, but especially, I guess, with Baal worship, was terrible immorality and sinfulness. Baal actually means Lord. That was interesting to me. I just learned that in this study, that Baal means Lord. And so you're thinking along with me, aren't you, that Satan who devised this made-up idol, this made-up God, called him Lord in direct competition with the God of heaven and earth who is the real Lord. So, what happened on Mount Carmel that day, that contest, a little bit like a sports event, uh, that contest was in no small way a contest between the real God, the real one true God, and Baal worship, idol worship in general. So that's enough about the place. Let's think now about the people that were there. I guess you can't hear me, can you? Everything looks kind of good here, and everything sounds good. Thank you. The people. Let's talk about Elijah, and just to think about the kind of person that he was. And as we think about Elijah and how he behaved on that day, up there on Mount Carmel, in relation to those in conflict against him, I think that there would be things for us to learn, for us here to learn about how 
God would lead us to do at times when we are in conflict or confrontation with other people. It could be those in our family, could be those in our church or our job, especially though when we're in confrontation with godless people, uh, sinners who would attempt to make light of the God that we serve. Looking at verses 18 through 22, now Joseph, for time's sake, read just part of this story. Let's break in at 18 through 22, and what I see there is courage, Elijah's courage. Where do I see courage in those verses, those five verses? Well, way back to verse 2. And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab. God said, go to Elijah. God said to Elijah, go to Ahab. So he did. That took courage. Verse 18. He has the courage when he meets Ahab to confront Ahab's truthlessness with truth. You see that there, don't you? Courage. He had courage to give, Abra- uh, to give Ahab directives, verse 19. It was on Elijah's initiative that this contest was arranged and happened. Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and so on. Courage. It took an awful lot of courage, verse 22, to be outnumbered. 450 to 1. We can hardly imagine being outnumbered that way. Basically, as someone has said, it was really the whole world against Elijah up there on Mount Carmel that day. 450 to 1. Not to mention 400 others, prophets of the groves that were in reserve It looks like maybe they weren't there on Mount Carmel. It's easy for me to imagine. Can you imagine with me uh, that scene of what it must have been like? People gathering there, and there was an air of expectancy. And here comes the 450 prophets of Baal, and I would just imagine that they were dressed in, all, in good finery and probably with uniforms, and they looked the part of very impressive. Here comes Ahab, probably being carried by a number of servants in a little basket type thing, which I think they did back in those days picture of the Ark of the Covenant and how it had pools and people carried that. I think something like that, we're guessing, is what, how Abraham, how Ahab would arrive. And again, a lot of fanfare, and he looked impressive. He's the king. All the power and all the finery was on that side. On the other side was one lone man. According to what we gather in Scripture, He was probably pretty shaggy, didn't look very impressive. He was probably a gaunt figure after being, yeah, and wore odd dress even for that time. 
I'm just guessing, though, that he probably didn't have glasses that were taped together. But 450 to 1. Courage. That brings us to number 2, thing that I'd like to think about, about Elijah. Not only did he have courage that's personified in those verses, but in verse 21 also, he gives the choice. And he says the word choose is not in that verse, in verse 21, but the idea is, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Elijah called the people to a choice that day, to a decision, to a resolve. Remember the song we just read, we just sang a few minutes ago, I am resolved no longer to linger. That's what, charmed by the world's delights, that's what Elijah was calling the people of Israel to. He said, it's time that you choose. You can't just be one or the other. How long halt? Ye, that verb, halt. We use that word to mean stop, right? Halt, stop. It's a little different there. Halt, how long halt ye? It means to waver or to falter. How long are you going to put off the decision of who you are to serve? How long are you going to falter? And the literal meaning has that idea of limping. How long are you going to limp between two opinions, Elijah asks. How long are you going to limp? And I think it's interesting and instructive that the people didn't say a word. They just stood there and looked at him, I guess. For three and a half years, it hadn't rained And it was clear to Israel, it had to be clear to the people, that it hadn't rained because Elijah had said that God said that it's not going to rain. Now remember, Baal was the god of thunder, the god of the weather, and he was supposed to make it rain. But the real god had said, it's not going to rain. But still, the people answered not a word. They still weren't convinced. That brings us to verses 23 through 25. And here I see courtesy. Courage that Elijah displayed. The choice that he called the people to. And now Elijah's courtesy in these three verses. Do you see it there? Uh, I'm especially thinking of two things. He arranged the contest and the, he gave the opposite side a built-in advantage. Howard Hendricks has said Then he, Elijah, set the terms of the contest. 
You call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Now that was a stroke of genius. Baal was the chief deity in the Canaanite pantheon of gods, and he was considered Lord of the heavens. Whenever the priests of Baal saw lightning in the sky and heard thunder, they would explain, they would exclaim, that is Baal, that is God. He was the Lord of fire. So if the God of fire ought so if the God of fire ought to be able to do anything, it's light a fire, right? Elijah was forcing them to put their God to the test. The people thought that was a good idea. It was a very equitable arrangement. In fact, it was decidedly in their favor since theirs was the God of fire. So it says, Mr. Hendricks, I, I appreciate that insight. So Elijah gave them, the 450, the minority gave the majority a head start by having the fire part being the contest. Also, he displays his courtesy by, you're thinking of that perhaps. Verse 25, letting them go first and letting them do their thing first, courtesy. And again, as we're thinking of the actions and the attitude that Elijah displayed that day up on Mount Carmel, we're thinking about ourselves, hopefully, and hopefully being able to learn about confrontation with others. Courtesy. Courage. Choice. Courtesy. Second, or fourthly now, comes, I think, to the interesting part. Verse 27 the cynical part. And the Bible says that Elijah mocked them. So Elijah kind of taunted them and mocked them. It was, I, I can imagine he sat back and was enjoying this part of it, this part of the day, as they went through all their shenanigans, useless and ineffective, so what kind of God is your God, Elijah was saying in effect. Your God apparently isn't omnipotent. He, he apparently needs batteries in his hearing aids. Um, the fact that he taunted them and kidded them and mocked them, as the Bible says. Is there a place in our relationship with others in doing that? Well, perhaps there is. I would say, though, that we, wanna, that we need to be very careful and under the Lordship of Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit when we do those kind of things to people who oppose us, but especially to those who are opposing our God. It's just possible that the Holy Spirit may lead us to mock, as did Elijah that day, for the, for, for the reason to be turning those people, that person, toward God. Verse 30 through 35, we notice all the procedures that Elijah went through then when it was his turn. They had had their chance. They had had a good, big chance. 
And their God wasn't coming through for them. And I just notice, especially as maybe you have, verse 26, the Bible says, but there was no voice nor any that answered. Verse 29 that there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. There's good reason for that because there was no God like Baal. It was a big, he was a big fat zero, a nothing. There is no Baal. There is a Satan that has devised that untruth, that lie, that idol, certainly. So now it's Elijah's turn, and in a very crystal clear way, that's the point that I see, or how I would entitle verses 30 through 35, he made everything crystal clear. Do you see that he says, verse 30, come near unto me. And I can imagine that the people were spread all around watching this, uh, all the action here in the middle, and he says, come closer. Why did he say that? I think he said that because he had nothing to hide. And in, which was different from the secret kind of things that idol worship and Baal worship did. He had nothing to hide. Everything that he did here was in a crystal clear manner so that people could see, they could understand, they could appreciate. He was calm, just the opposite of their carrying on. He was deliberate, and his words, and especially his actions, verses 30 through 35, were very meaningful. Everything that he did was transparent. It was above board. There's nothing secret or shady in any way. There is a lot for us to learn and appreciate and copy in that today. For, for us individually, but for us as a church, that of above board, transparent, nothing to hide by God's grace. A question I have is, where did the water come from? Do you remember that it hadn't rained for three and a half years? How did they get water up to the top of Mount Carmel? Where did the water, from where did the, they, where did they get the water? Be interesting to know, but people think that they would have needed to go down to the Mediterranean Sea, and near as I could tell, uh, that was about nine miles. So quite a lot of effort expended there. But going on to verse 36 and 37, we see his communication, or we would say a prayer. We've already talked about his courage and his call to choosing. We've talked about his courtesy and his cynicalness and how that he was crystal clear in everything that he did. Now let's think about verses 36 and 37, how I would entitle this communication, his prayer to God. 63 words, someone has said. And just like his actions in verses 30 through 35 were crystal clear, 
So was this prayer. It was calm. It was a deliberate, and it was a meaningful prayer. In great contrast to what the people had been witnessing all day, that, that showmanship and jumping around and hollering around and stabbing and carrying... Useless, ineffective. But here was a calm, deliberate, meaningful communication with the one true God. As we think about prayer, we notice that he prayed in verse 36 and 37, and we notice that Elijah prayed again in verse 42. And the Bible indicates that he had prayed at the beginning of this three-and-a-half-year no-rain period. I think this is a wonderful Old Testament model for New Testament Holy Spirit-led Christians and prayer. And verse 42, do you see that his prayer was earnest? He cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. And James 5.17 says that he prayed earnestly. We certainly see that in verse 42. His prayer was earnest and his prayer was expectant. Notice verse 43. And certainly his prayer was effective, verse 45. And if you would like to hear more about prayer, all that you need to do is... Um, Go back two weeks and listen again to Nate Bang's sermon on prayer here two weeks ago. Communication. Communication with the one true God of heaven and earth. And we need to talk number about consequences as well. Elijah. Um, and the consequences of verse 40. Do you see it there? Verse 40. Not the kind of thing that we feel awfully comfortable with. Not the kind of thing that we really want to talk about that much. I don't. Maybe you don't either. But let's do. I appreciate what Howard Hendricks says about this. And on that, this point, maybe I will just read what he says. Does this seem a bit extreme? Not according to the law. The, the penalty for false prophets was death. Deuteronomy 13, 1-5. God knew that there was a malignancy in the nation. God knew that when there was a malignancy in the nation, it would have to be thoroughly excised before there could be any lasting victory. Thus, Elijah was acting as a spiritual surgeon, knowing he had to hurt in order to heal. I think sometimes we moderns sit in judgment on the Old Testament without taking into account the tragic effects of sin that is not judged with severity. At the same time, we can thank God that we live in a day of grace, he still judges sin, but his ultimate judgment of sin took place on the cross where Jesus paid the penalty. He died the death. He took the judgment. Therefore, even false prophets can now find forgiveness and redemption provided they repent of their sins and renounce their unbelief and rebellion. 
the consequences. So we've talked about at length here about Elijah, the prophet Elijah, his courage, his call to choosing, his courtesy, how he was cynical, his crystal clear method of, of proceeding, his communication with God, and then the consequences of the false prophets. Let's look now just for a little bit at other people that were up there that day, up on Mount Carmel. Let's think about the 450 false prophets. They were imported, I think. I've never seen this or read this, but somehow I just have always thought that that probably they were imported and weren't Israelites, that they were imported from Jezebel's home country. It's, uh, it is biblical that they were sponsored and bankrolled by Jezebel, 450 of them. It would have taken quite a lot of capital to keep that going, but Jezebel, I guess, thought that it was worth the effort. Of these 450 false prophets, they seemingly were on the ascendant religious platform of the day. And what I mean by that is that Idolatry had taken a hold maybe only about a hundred years before and it gained momentum as it will. Sin often does. And basically it had taken over the whole country so that Elijah, whether he's correct or not, says, I'm the only one. He says that in verse 22 and then again in chapter 19 he complains about that. They were on the winning side, obviously. Or so it seemed. They were on the side that was gaining all the momentum and was just going to steamroll the one true God into oblivion, so they thought. They were the ones with all the, politi- the religiously correct views and the pitiful, poor uninformed people that didn't agree with them uh, were not of any account. But these 450, that seemed to be the case. But they were judged by the God of all the earth that day. They were severely judged. There's 450 false prophets. That kind of naturally leads us into Ahab, the next person that we'd like to talk about, who was also up there and was drinking everything in. Ahab, the king himself. And I asked the question, why did God spare him? I don't know. I do know that he was the worst king that... Israel had had up to that time. Back in chapter 16, it says in verse 31 and following, and it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Verse 33, and Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. His behavior and his belief was such that it angered God. And yet God spared him that day. I wonder why. And I'd be interested in your thoughts. I wonder why. 
One reason, one thing we know for sure, don't we, is that God gave Ahab yet another chance to repent. Our God is long-suffering. He's a God of justice. We certainly saw that with the 450. But God is also a God of mercy. And he was merciful to Ahab that day. And we don't, like it says in, where is it, Romans 11 or 12? We just had that in Sunday school not too long ago. God knows what he's doing. And we trust God that he did that perfectly and right. Certainly so. But God is long-suffering. He's long-suffering yet today. A picture of God's mercy and his long-suffering, I always appreciate way back in Genesis with Methuselah, you know. Methuselah was born, and Enoch, his dad, named him Methuselah, which means after his death it shall happen. After his death it shall happen. And we can easily understand and notice there that just after Methuselah died, the flood came on. After his death it shall happen. But God saw to it that Methuselah, after his death it shall happen, lived on and on and on. And he lived longer than anyone else. To me, it's a beautiful picture of God's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He lived 969 years as God waited, and God waited. But the time eventually came for the wicked back then, and Ahab in our text today, and all ungodly people yet today, the time will come when God's justice will be poured out and they will be consigned to hell forever and ever without any hope whatsoever of any kind. Tragedy of tragedies, Ahab apparently didn't take that opportunity to repent, and near as we can tell, he never did. He never repented. He never said, God, I agree with you. I've been on my own. I've been doing everything wrong. But I agree with you, and I will turn and follow you. That's what repentance is. Then there is all Israel. They were up there that day, up on Mount Carmel. And I had never really noticed before so much how that there was a big audience that day. Verse 19, Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel. Verse 20, so Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel. Verse 21, and Elijah came unto all the people. And when it talks about the people here and the people of Israel, it's, I'm quite sure it's not talking about the 450 false prophets, but the people of Israel who are here watching the contest. They're not a part of the contest, 450 against one, but they are watching. I think that the text uh, differentiates quite clearly before, between the 450 and the people who are watching, all Israel. And these people, the people of Israel were syncretic. I wonder if I, I think I pronounced that right. They were syncretic. And that simply means that 
combining or bringing together different philosophical, religious, or cultural principles and practices. They were the kind of people that said, yes, we trust God, we worship God, we believe in God. But then they left a little bit of room for Baal, too, just in case Baal also could do them some good. That's the kind of people they were. And we see that various places in the Old Testament. Rachel was one, Jacob's wife. We think that she was a God-fearer, a God-believer, but she had those idols that she hid away. Jehu was another one. He was very much against the one type of idolatry, but he fell right in with the other type. Syncretic, syncreticism. Leaving a little bit of space, a little bit of wiggle worm, wiggle room. I'm for you, God, but just in case I might need him, I also align myself with somebody else just a little bit. That, those pe- the, the people were that way. And they were very noncommittal in verse 21. And the reason was, I think, is because they weren't wanting to make up their mind, or at least not until this contest is over. Now, by the end of, by verse, around verse 40, there's irrefutable evidence That there is only one true God and that he's the winner and the victor and Baal is nothing. Irrefutable evidence. And I wonder, were they sincere by what, in what they said? Isn't it neat what they said? The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. Jehovah, he's the only God. He's the one and only. Do you think they meant it? Do you think that that verbal commitment they meant um, lasted? Do you think they were sincere? I like to think that for many of them, they probably, it probably was a sincere statement and that they had decided up there that day to follow God and only Him. That they decided for God and never trusted Baal for anything ever again. And by the time 2 Kings rolls around, we read about the schools of the prophets. So, schools of the prophets. So there was a number of young men um, who were godly. I read about the third captain of 50 soldiers. I read about Elisha. And I read about Elisha's servant. They were all godly people, all godly men. But I also read about people like the little maid and the great woman of Shunem, who were godly women. And I am so blessed by that and encouraged by that. All Israel. So we've talked now about Elijah. We've talked about the 450 false prophets and about Ahab and about all Israel. And now it's time to come to the fifth and the final person. And that, you're guessing, is me and you, isn't it? there's a sense in which as you sit here and I stand here that we are on Mount Carmel today. What's to be decided on Mount Carmel? 
Not literally, of course. We aren't over there in Israel, but figuratively, we stand where the, where the people of Israel stood that day. The setting is different. The idols are different. But the real issue is the same. For the children of Israel, the, what they faced that day and the decision they needed to make, what's to be decided on Mount Carmel? What's to be decided? I plan to read a quote from David Jeremiah, and then we'll pause just a little bit for that to sink in, and then we'll kneel for prayer and, and have silent prayer personal prayer, give you a chance for personal silent prayer, you for you and me for me. And if the Lord is telling you that there's something to decide, if the Lord is telling me that there's something to decide, why don't you during that time decide that for the Lord and let him lead you and me so that our decisions that are made today will be for the one true God. Here's the quote from David Jeremiah. The problem in Elijah's day is very similar to the problem in our day. It's not so much that we have rejected God. We have just made him a very small part of our lives. He's our Sunday God. He's our church God. We put him in a little section of our life, but not as the one and only true God. We worship him, but we also worship other things. Success, financial achievement, popularity, and so on. Our lives get filled up with gods, and we try to share these gods with the one true God, Jehovah. But you cannot serve two masters. Will you kneel with me for prayer? Mm -hmm.